Welcome to Dad Bod History. I'm Eric Hoffman. I'm joined by Jake Rines and Cameron Lehman. And uh, we are um, setting out on a little bit something new um, in the next few episodes uh, based on something that Jake brought up, and we'll bring that up in a few minutes. So, Jake, Cameron, welcome. Hey, Eric. How you doing? Good. 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 There's this... um show i watched on netflix today and it's ben schwartz do you guys know who he is no uh, i think he's so. john ralphio on Parks no and Rec. Oh. never mind now i know <laughs> <laughs> he's you also on space force yeah yes he is on space force yeah he's i love that guy he's and, the same uh, guy in both shows he, he's really just ben schwartz and he never actually <laughs> acts but man he's funny and so he's got this show on Netflix with this other guy called Thomas Middleditch. And, um, it's called oh, Middleditch my gosh. Schwartz. He's in... I, um, I watched the first... Have you ever Thomas watched Middleditch? Silicon Valley? No. Oh. But I've seen him on other stuff. But is he on that too? He's he's a main character in that. He's great in that. Oh, is he? And, and so I was watching it this uh, afternoon, actually, right before I came upstairs. Well, no, that's a lie. I watched Murder, She Wrote right before I came upstairs but um, to film this. But I was watching it before then, and it's this improv show on Netflix, and it's totally improvised. And they just start talking to the audience, and they kind of say, hey, what what's something that you guys are worried about in the upcoming future? And this one guy yelled, the wedding, I'm getting getting married, you know. And, and so then they talk to him and his girlfriend, and then the actual couple, the fiancés, and they built this, you know, they got this whole story from them and they built this 45 minute special. Um, and I was in stitches, like I was laughing uncontrollably uh, watching this thing. And my wife, she looks at me and she's like, are you drunk? And I go, no, I'm not drunk. I'm not yet. I mean, I will be. But and she, she's like, she must think everything is improved by you being drunk. Yeah, that's what I've, it's, it's kind of a, a standing note from her. You, you're better at this if you're drunk. So, um, so she's fixing said, the cabinets, like, no. washing the dishes. And she's like, yeah, not driving. That's one thing she's been very clear on, but, um, she's like, yeah, it was funny, but it wasn't as funny as you were laughing. Like it was, I was out of my mind laughing. Um, so point is I would highly recommend mm-hmm. Um, giving it a shot when you when you guys get a chance because it was it was good. I was impressed. I didn't think they would be able to go forty five minutes straight total improv improv um, on a on a silly topic about a wedding, but they did, and it was gold. So that was my big that was my big Sunday. I don't know about you guys. Do you guys do anything? Yeah. So I got something. Um, I just realized the other okay. day that it is the anniversary Seven um, Eleven of uh the day that we put in um my concrete slab in my backyard so it, it nine just years ago back to the day nine years ago exactly yeah. and i happened to be working in the yard the last two days and there was a 
hottest days of the year. It's absolutely brutal. And what else happened on 7-Eleven that nine years ago? <laughs> no idea. Because I, I, I don't know because I, well, I missed most of the uh, the slab. Yeah. You, you, get enough, you, went to... you get enough of the credit, though. I mean, you you put in time for sure. And I'm still in debt to both of you guys for that. But anytime, yeah. Yeah, what does Dave Ramsey think about Home that? Depot, anytime the guy at Home Depot says, oh, man, this is a mistake to do to pour concrete in 112 degree heat. Yeah, you know, I, I should have listened to him, but we're better for it. It was, it was one of those uh, male bonding moments. So anyway, <laughs> it was so bad. But it was so funny because by the end of that, you, me and Josh were punch drunk at like 10 uh-huh. p.m. trying to hammer that stupid pergola. <laughs> and we came up with that pergola pirate song. Because <laughs> 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 we've been like three consecutive days of nonstop backbreaking labor. And we're like, pergola pirates, we'll steal your pergola. And that's what we were doing. And your wife would come out and be like, are you guys okay? And like, yeah, we're fine. Yeah. Oh, so, we thought we were so But Eric cool. missed. Yeah. Eric missed it because. Pretty good excuse. Sorry. You're not going to tell us why. My daughter was born. Your daughter was born. But it, was, right. it wasn't that it was just that your daughter was born. Like, didn't you and Cameron and Josh go to Home Depot and you were talking about yep. it to somebody there? Yeah, and like, some lady, the lady there. said. Oh yeah, you're fine. That baby's not going to come out yet for another week. And and, okay. and to Eric's yeah. credit, his wife is in labor, and he's trying to help me in my backyard. Like it was, maybe not. Maybe I'm exaggerating, but you were standing. It, there. it was crunch I mean, time. Was, it was. Well, crunch yeah, I mean, time. yeah, we were in the days leading up to it, but yeah, yeah. Summer, I didn't have anything to do. Yeah. <laughs> so nine years. Yeah. Nine years since Kylie was born and Cameron <sighs> made a, made a, a oh gosh. patio with pergola. E- I mean, both are equally Equally important days. Yeah. So that's awesome, man. Yeah, no. Ye- yesterday we celebrated the pergola going up. We got cake and <laughs> we had a we yeah. had a big to-do about it. My parents even came Good out for it. Presents so. and barbecue. Yeah. Man, that's nice. Yeah. It's the it's the little things in a time of crisis. It's it's remembering the little things like that that's right, yeah. matter the most. So that's awesome. Um, well, with with that, I mean, I, I, that's a great lead in to obviously what we're talking about. Um, so I I had this thought uh, earlier in the week, and it actually came from I was at the gas station um, by my work. I'm pretty much the only person that goes into the office on a regular basis, and people will come you know, here and there. Uh, but I went to the gas station to, to get a monster uh, energy drink. And as I was at the, the, the cashier, I saw a sign and it said, due to the recent shortage, um, the federal reserve for shortage on coins, we can only accept exact change. And uh, if you do give us cash, we can't give you change, but we will give you a gift card for the amount of the change. So Eric, Text. I posted that on Twitter and, and Instagram, and here it goes. Oh, so you're gonna have a 96 cent purchase, and you're gonna get a four cent gift card. And I was actually thinking about, I'm like, well, yeah, because a refill from their fountain drink is 96 cents. So theoretically, somebody goes in there with a buck, mm-hmm. they're gonna get a four cent gift card that they're gonna redeem later. Um, but the whole thing kind of got me thinking about, and I've seen at Safeway now, mm-hmm. um, their automated tellers don't 
the, the self-checkouts, they don't dispense cash anymore. And the whole thought behind it is, is that that cash changes hands and it changes, you know, can take the virus from one place to the next. And, and I guess coins is the worst um, of that. It, it transmits the easiest. And so that's why the Federal Reserve is kind of coming up with this ordinance, like no more money, you can't circulate any more coins and you can't circulate any more cash. And what that's doing is it's a direct result of the shutdown and with COVID. And so it got me thinking like, well, what other ways has COVID and our response as a country to it changed us? And are those changes permanent and are they going to continue and how are they going to continue, I guess, in the future? And so that's kind of what brought up this topic for me. Um, and I threw it to, to you guys. And I mean, I think we've all seen in our own personal lives have been upended um, by how COVID has changed us. And I want to get into that. But um, before we do that, I think we need to kind of understand the, the historical context of pandemics and how pandemics, as bad as they are, um, can lead to some really great and uh, profound mm -hmm. changes. And so that's kind of the, the topic. And we're probably going to spend a few episodes talking about this. I know Eric and Cameron, and, and I know Nick's not on tonight. We were all thinking of different ways that we could kind of play with this topic and make it a series. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the, the starting point. Yeah. One of the things that kept popping, popping into my head as I was doing the research is that um, there's this fallacy that we know more now than we did in history. You know, some of the articles that I <laughs> yeah. read almost come off as condescending of the, the quote unquote innocent past of 19. Oh, they didn't have all of oh they're not as learned as we are now um but if you think about it people are people and, and human nature never really changes and, and when people operate out of fear they do things that are irrational you know just average person john q public and then you know the government mm -hmm. the elites the you know aristocrats what do you want to call them act in order to okay maybe we should suppress this this, you know, and, and, and they, they said it. So something that jumped out at me that I think was shocking was World War One. The the newspapers were being censored in a certain way. That's why they mm -hmm. called it Spanish flu. And maybe I'm jumping in a little too much. Sorry guys. But um the, no, the Spanish flu was coined Spanish flu because Spain was kinda you know neutral. They yeah, were they, they were neutral, neutral in, in World during War One. And they actually reported the truth newspapers where everybody else was you know, we need to be careful what the narrative is because people are freaked out already from world war one and it, mm -hmm. it's it's cool that's a great thing about history is the better you understand it the better you know that it's bound to repeat itself yeah and I, I from what i understand that the flu pandemic of 1918 because we don't call it the Spanish flu. We, we, That's right. The World Health Organization and others have, have determined that calling something based on its location of um, outbreak is problematic, to use a, a word I hate. Um, and so it's now called the, the flu epidemic or influenza epidemic of 1918, 1919, um, that actually started in Kansas at a U.S. military base. This is where the first outbreak, and then it spread to other U.S. military out, out uh bases and from there spread across the world um in terms of we know more than people did in the past 
I think that's true because we know that bubonic plague is spread through is is a uh, it's a contagion. It's not uh, miasmic air. It's not you know bad air. You know, so we do know some things, but like you like to your point, Cameron, people operate on human nature. And in another way, I, I, I'm I'm hesitant to uh, attribute any maliciousness to the state. I think the state operates amorally, uh, and the people in power operate amorally. And kind of like the invisible hand that Adam Smith had about economics, that capitalism just will move things forward. Um, governments operate in the same way. A government, a collective, will operate to protect itself. Um, at the expense of the individual. So, and I think there's a lot of that that's going to happen when we look at pandemics. Yeah, but it is interesting is is that I think, and maybe this is jumping off Cameron's point, I think we, obviously, we do know more stuff than we did 100 years ago, and certainly way more stuff than we did during the Black Plague. However, what's the first thing that happened when COVID hit America? is we went out and bought all the toilet paper because we freaked out. Had, but we knew better. We're like, no, if you act reasonably and responsibly, mm-hmm. you're not going to run out of toilet paper. We'll be fine. The supply chain will be okay. But the first thing we did was behave irrationally. So as much as we like to act like we're superior or we're more developed than those simpletons in the 1900s or those you know, superstitious um, folks back so, in the 1200s or 1300s, <clears throat> We're not. We, we still act just as irrationally. It's just about different stuff. Yeah, and is there something in the ni- in 1918 that was uh, hoarded? And again, I don't know. And why were things hoarded? Well, at a location somewhere in the United States, they ran out of toilet paper, and someone took a picture of that, and that got on Twitter, Facebook, MySpace, whatever you use still, and people saw that toilet paper ran out in a location. We don't know why. And then everywhere then there was the run on toilet paper so the fact that we we actually know more and have the capability of knowing more than they did 100 years ago caused a problem yeah Um, and i remember i remember saying maybe this is a justification in my head but i remember saying well i'm not going to the grocery store to stock on canned foods because i'm scared i'm doing it because everybody else is doing it i don't mm -hmm. be behind so, yeah, exactly. And, and that feeds the paranoia and that feeds the, the out of character behavior. That like so, it or not, we all we are. But see, it's, it's not out of character. Um, it's just uncharacteristic for us to be in a situation where we run out of toilet paper. And this is something that a good friend of mine pointed out. It had nothing really to do with shortage of the actual supply. It had to do with the fact that we've become so efficient in our grocery stores and where we buy stuff have got it down to a science. They know pretty much exactly how much they need in a given week to supply the people that shop there. And, you know, everything's been computerized. You've got machine learning that's that's kind of telling them, well, at the end of March, this store usually needs a little extra. At the beginning of April, you need a little less. Um Stores don't use their warehouses to have extra stock because they know exactly how much they'll need. 
what happened here was when you had a run on these stores, they didn't have any backstocked, and the supply chain was not prepared to get everything where it needed to be right away. So we become more efficient to the point that we actually can't stand a sudden overload on the system in terms of supply chains. Yeah, and I think what's going to happen as a result of this is obviously the, the, the companies and the governments and all the agencies that work together because there's no such thing as like a, a purely capitalist country. Um, they're going to learn lessons on this pandemic and they're going to make adjustments and they're going to make sure when when the next one comes that the supply chain knows how to adjust. That's one of the cool things about watching an economy is that it's pretty quick at adapting to new circumstances. Um, and I think that's something we're definitely going to visit in a later episode. But before we get into that, I think we kind of want to reach back into the past. Um, and I don't know if you want to go with the, the epidemic of 1918 or if you want to go back to the bubonic plague. Um, if you want to start with the first thing first or if you want to hit the... Uh, you know, we can talk about them kind of in general terms um, okay. because we could we could spend 45 minutes to an hour on each different pandemic. Yeah. Um, but I think the point being we're putting this one into context. You know, historically speaking, we are what I would say March, April, May, June, we're roughly four and a half months into this pandemic. Mm-hmm. And based on what I have up right now from worldometers.info, um, <clears throat> worldwide, there are 13 million cases. Worldwide, there have been 571,000 deaths and seven and a half million people have recovered. So among cases that are closed, those cases with an outcome, you're looking at 7% mortality. Of active cases, there's nearly 5 million that are in mild condition and roughly 60,000 or 1% that are in serious or critical condition. So to keep this in context, I, I think based on the numbers that we're seeing, we're looking at, we're going to look at when this is all said and done, roughly 5% or less um, mortality worldwide. That'll be less in the United States, I think, but 5% mortality. And and I think it will be lower when it's all said and done. But to put that in context, the um, bubonic plague, it looks like it was roughly, uh, I want to say... 40% 40% mortality or 60? I think it's I read 60. 60. Yeah. 60%. So that is, and we know that what 60, what one third of Europe died. So it depends roughly, on what you're reading, but it could be, I mean, some articles said a third, others said up to 60%. It just, it's hard so, to pin it down. So but roughly speaking, massive. we're looking at a third of them died, a third of them got it and lived, and a third never contracted it, roughly. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, th- those numbers are, and if you don't know what a third is, that's going to be 33%. So that's a much higher mortality, not to mention a much higher uh, infection rate. Um, of course, that happened over the course of hundreds of years. You did have your 13th century outbreaks your 14th century outbreaks 
but bubonic plague struck again into the 1800s, correct? Yeah, and, and recently I just saw an article that said the, that there was a couple cases of bubonic plague in Mongolia, which is theoretically where they think it started originally back in the 1300s. Um, but the the mortality rate is 60%. They say anywhere, and again, the numbers are so hard to pin down, but anywhere between 25 to 200 million dead um, in the first plague uh, in the 1350s, uh, 40s and mm-hmm. 50s, um, which, I mean, it's just astronomical. That's anywhere from the state of, what, Texas to two-thirds of the United States dead in a matter of a couple of years. I mean, that's there's there's no comparison today. Um, as and, bad as COVID is, it's just this is the bubonic plague in that first hit in, I think, 1347 to 51 was something that we'll probably, hopefully, never see again. Um, and I think... It's, it's interesting, Jake, to your point, you say it's so hard to pin down. Obviously, it's occurred 700 years ago, and going back to the um, the comment before, as we know more, there's so much, if you read Facebook, people get fights over, okay, where are this data from? Is the CDT reliable? Is the WHO reliable? All these numbers are floating around. You know, if you look at the, the Spanish flu, there were anywhere from 50 to 100 deaths if you look at the black death there was anywhere from 30 to 60 percent of of europe died so to me i i look at those whoa those are big ranges but it's not you know maybe it's more extreme than what we're going through with covid but you look at a number and it's like okay where does this come from how are we diagnosing what is actually how many it's a covid death how many cases are double cases that is somebody got tested then got tested a second time right they they don't mark them as separate tests now uh do you know anyone who's gotten a covid test i do yeah so my son had one the other day because he had a fever and he had diarrhea Mm -hmm. and so we called urgent care and they said you can't come to this urgent care We're only doing like cuts and bruises. So they sent us to another one where we had to wait for two hours in our car. And then she determined it was a sinus infection. But she's still going to do the COVID test because we want to be sure, you know. So we'll get that back five to seven days after we've taken it. And now, again, we're at home, so I'm not too worried. But um, it's a long time to wait, too. And if he, yeah, I mean, if he, well, it's, the testing is just, it's all over the place. Yeah, it is. It's not unified by any measure. And I think that's a good parallel to um, the 1918 uh, pandemic is that um, one of the results of that pandemic was in America was the beginning of a national testing and health database system. It was because nobody was able to report um, accurate information. How could they separate it from a normal flu? Was it not the flu at all? And at, and that's why you get these big ranges. Was it 20 million? Was it 50 million? Well, we don't know because there was no system in place to record anything, really, 
Um, states were kind of left to their own devices. And then one of the results of that was the, the change from America, from an American perspective on how to, to get the best data. And then in the world, same thing, uh, a precursor to what we know as the WHO uh, started in Vienna, Austria in 1919, became the WHO in 1946, um, and kind of gave us our first world reporting organization and uh, first organization that could track epidemics and pandemics as they were happening in real time, which was something that was unheard of. And while we can say the states today in America and the CDC and, and how they report data is not unified across the states compared to 102 years ago, it's light years ahead of what it was before, mm-hmm. which is a big step forward. Well, and that's that's not even considering people that even went to the doctor. It was an aberration if you went to the doctor really ever in 19. Mm-hmm. Babies were born at home with, you know, somebody that knew a little bit about delivering babies in the neighborhood. It was mm-hmm. only the one percent that were born in a, in a hospital. Yeah. Or with a doctor present. Yeah, and, and the one percent is you're talking about like the the most violent motorcycle gang members. Is that <laughs> yep. are those the one percenters yep. you're talking about? Uh-huh. They're the best doctors. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't even have motor- Whereas... motorcycles. Best doctors. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That's why they joined the gang is is for the sweet medical benefits. That's that makes sense. That makes I thought sense. everybody knew that. Yeah. I think and and obviously compared to. The Black Plague or the Bubonic Plague is, you know, it started in Kaffa, which is a city in the Crimean Sea and in, in 1347. And in my research, it was the Mongols. So we were just talking about the Mongols surrounded the city of Kaffa, which was a crusader state at the time, and they were besieging it. But the Mongols were getting ravaged by the, the plague themselves. And so their best option at taking the city was to take the bodies of those plague victims and catapult them over the walls and infect the city with it. And then from there, they took, you know, ships from Kaffa went, and then they went to the Mediterranean, to Constantinople, and then to Alexandria, and then to Venice. And, you know, and then from there, the plague spread. And so really the, and the, the way it spread was it went, around the coasts of Europe first, and then it slowly worked inward. But there was no reporting system. It was just like, up oh, Florence got hit, and now um, Vienna got hit, and then it started to move its way in. And and so there was no reporting system. It was just, it traveled, news traveled as fast as a ship or a horse could go in its day. Whereas by the time of 1918, Obviously, we had an intercontinental railroad, we had ships, we had telegrams and telephones, and, and so we were able to communicate with each other in a unified system. And then today, everything everything is almost instantaneous, like we like to call it. But then, Eric, you said you still have to wait five to seven days before you know if Owen has it. So I think that's the difference is yeah is the the ability to communicate because in in the in the Black Plague one of the articles I read, one of the points they made was that this was a time 
of unprecedented travel and communication. It was the mm -hmm. first. And when we were talking about the Mongols, it was yeah. that first kind of global economy and that global um, communication between nation states and trade between nation states. And one of the benefits of that is more wealth, more prosperity. One of the side side um, or drawbacks of that is, you know, things like communicable diseases travel much, much more quicker when you have an open trade system and open borders, for lack of a better term. Yeah, I mean, and that, that's, that's something not... we're still dealing with today is how do we stop it from coming to America? Yeah, that's so that again, the plague. But I'm also looking at because I was reading about things like malaria and cholera and um, <clears throat> tuberculosis, that these things tended to first manifest in port cities along coasts and then work their way inwards along railroads or other road systems. And so mm -hmm. that's true with the Black Plague as well. It hit the ports and then worked its way inland. Obviously, mm -hmm. crossing land was more difficult for the plague than going from port to port. <clears throat> what makes, and even the Spanish flu, it went from port to port before it went inland because that was a primary mode of travel. So to put the COVID crisis into perspective is I don't think ports are where this is moving because nobody uses mass ships. Even though we had a, a massive uh, case on both a U.S. aircraft carrier as well as um, a major cruise liner, <clears throat> which actually, you know, in retrospect, could have been used really well to say we have an outbreak on a ship at sea. We're going to quarantine the ship, and we're actually going to study what happens next on the ship. Because there's good data to be had there in a microcosm of a of a of a group, and you can't release them. You have to wait tw 14 days, anyways. Um, but we didn't do that. The difference here with COVID is the primary mode of transportation, especially across great distances, is air travel. And that's kind of where we're at. By the time we caught on to what was happening, even shutting the border between us and China, uh, closing travel from Europe, Europe to the United States, it was not going to, the, it was already in the United States. And in fact, one of the first cases to actually cause a, a city to shut down was in the middle of Nebraska. So if it was already to Nebraska, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's already done, like it's here. So to put this into context, this thing has the ability to spread much faster um, via our methods of transportation. And information about it has a, the, the ability to move much faster, as well as misinformation. So we've, we've got all these benefits, but if we misuse them, we end up in a, in a worse situation than we would have. So... Yeah, I think that's a, a good point. I think how it travels, and this is one of the things about viruses, is you're not going to stop it. Like, it's almost impossible to stop transmission of a virus. Um, so the best you can do is deal with it once it's here. I think that's one of the lessons that I kept saw being repeated um, as I was looking at these different pandemics is, it's here. How are we going to deal with it now? And how a different how a different community or state or country deals with this 
problem and and how it effectively deals with it will change the outcomes um on how it, on how well it gets through this crisis well and i think, and I think there's th- a good argument there for why um we have 50 states that all have some semblance of autonomy in terms of how they deal with it in terms of you have cities and counties that can all deal with it on their own as well as countries you know if sweden wants to deal with this in one way that's fine because when sweden deals with it we learn about how they dealt with it and and what the the outcome was when we let kansas do what it does and we let new york do what it does and we can see all these different outcomes that helps us get more information rather than having one single um you know, authoritarian measure that says, this is what we're going to do. We don't get any competing information or data. And that hurts us. But we also see that it's kind of hurt us in our slapshot approach to it in general. Uh, yeah, for, for, like, for the, the... I mean, our numbers are pretty bad. Our numbers are pretty bad, but there's a couple of things to consider with our numbers. First of all, we're we've provided more tests than any other country. Um, I still, I still am looking at Russia and China and either thinking the authoritarian measures they put in, into place to stem the tide of this virus are something that I would not want, or they're flat out lying to everyone about their own numbers, which, you know, they can do whatever they want. But the fact that, you know, some States will take a slapstick measure. Um, others will take a hard line. Others will be very clear um, but we can at least see what different methods are getting which results so that we can actually see what's happening. And what we're seeing right now um, is places like Arizona have very high numbers, but those numbers are among a younger group. Now, New York is still like number six in the world in terms of their cases and deaths. That's in the world compared to all nations. New York is way up there. Mm-hmm. So, but again, most of those were in nursing homes. So it, it's a, there's so many different pieces of data to look at. And, you know, Arizona is seeing its first wave right now. California is seeing its first real wave right now. New York hit its first wave. And so to also watch... Cases are going up, but deaths are either staying steady or not rising very much. Um, again, so to be clear, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a doctor, but it can read data fairly, fairly well. And so when I see deaths staying the same as cases rise, even with a seven-day lag, it's telling me that this is not as deadly as we saw in April. However, that doesn't mean there's not health consequences three months from now, six months from now, three years from now, 20 years from now. We don't know if this thing could cause cancer in 20 years for those who got it now. We have no way of knowing until that happens. So so here's a question, because I think that's a really good point, Eric, to bring up the, you know, authoritarian, authoritarian government way of handling it or you know there's it's not a perfect experiment obviously there's so many different variables every state handles it different every locality handles it different 
My question is this. Since March, what have we actually learned about this virus that's, that we know that's, that's 100%? Because I feel like since March 12th or whatever it is, we still know very little. And I'm not a physiologist either. But, you know, yeah, personal responsibility, be smart, social distancing, all of that kind of thing. I don't think that there's any less panic now than it was back in March in a lot of ways. No, I don't think I, I don't think the I don't know what the answer to that question is. I don't think the amount of panic has changed. I think it's it's refocused itself into other areas. Obviously right now what I'm seeing is and again we'll get into this later, is among the education community. It's just a heavy fear factor there. About being forced to go back to school. So at the at the risk of, of walking on eggshells and, and just destroying an entire carton of eggs here. Um, if 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 you're a teacher and you're afraid to go back to school because you're afraid of getting sick, I completely understand that. If you are fighting to not go back to school and you have a union-protected contract that guarantees you pay over the course of this year, whether you teach or not, I have an issue with, with your motivations. Because if you are in a sector in this country where your job and pay, sorry, your pay is protected regardless of what happens, and then you fight to stay out of your job, I'm a little bit, there's something suspect there. And I'm not saying that's true of teachers, but I'm, I'm a little bit suspect. Congress gets paid whether they go back to Washington or not. And a bunch fought not to go back to Washington in May. Their pay wasn't affected. So the people who have to work to get paid, they want to go back to work. And they don't care about the consequences either. Or they're, they're much less concerned about the consequences of getting sick to something that kills roughly 2% of people who are within you know the middle age range. They're much less concerned about getting sick than they are, I have to feed my family. So there's there's dozens of variables and dozens of motivations. And like we talked about before, there's human nature. And human nature and, and economics is really about human nature and what people are willing to do and what people are willing to do for, for payoffs and what motivates people to take certain actions. So um, the fear we have right now is going into the season that we're used to getting kids back to school. We spent March and April flattening the curve. The point was to flatten the curve so our healthcare system would be prepared for a second wave. We've flattened the curve. We've, I think we've learned about mortality. I think we've learned about how to keep people alive. We have a bunch of medications and, and um, treatments that seem to be doing something, although we're not 100% certain. We haven't gone through all the testing. At some point, we need to say, healthcare system, are you ready? Because we are going to 
we're going to try to move towards normalcy and expect a spike in cases and be prepared to handle it. Because we've gone from let's flatten the spiking. That's the yeah, and and we we haven't really flattened the curve though. That's the whole thing is is it kind of got flat and then we said well everything's fine and it shot right back up. Well, see, and that's that's nationwide though, and I think that's where it gets a little tricky. Well, it's it's because it's Arizona wide. Well, I mean it's California um, wide. So Arizona, like I said, they didn't. um, I'm trying to look back at the. uh, so Arizona never saw their first wave started in mid June. See, so Arizona's number of cases in April was like in the low hundreds. So you're now you're now experiencing Arizona's first wave. So Arizona managed to flatten the curve, but it also might be it, it really didn't hit Arizona early on. New York, they had their spike, and now they're flattening the curve. The curve is flattened. So it's. <clears throat> It's just tricky because, again, we're looking at this nationwide. If we look at this as if we were Europe, we're 50 different countries. We have different demographies. We have different uh, or different demographics. We have different, um, you know, rural versus urban. And so they're all going to respond differently. The, the, the disease is going to work differently through Los Angeles and New York than it will through Bismarck, North Dakota. So I, I guess I, I see what you're saying, but Europe is no longer. I mean, Europe is not as different from the United States as we like to think it is. And yet Europe, each country in Europe responded individually and collectively in certain respects as far as transit and crossing borders. But they all responded differently because each nation had a strong national response and each nation's numbers are way, way down than ours are. And I think the. And while in general I agree with you on letting states be autonomous, I do think when it comes to public health crises that that's an issue where the federal government needs to step in and say, no, this is how you're going to do things. And I, I get the fear of an authoritarian response, but we're we're well past the idea of theory. And I think if we learned anything from the epidemic in 1918 – it would be that you can't have a disorganized response to a pandemic. And that's exactly what we're having. And while the mortality rate compared to those is way, way down, it's still devastating our country and devastating our economy. And I think that's an issue. I think that's something where we have failed. And you can say, I'm not saying you specifically, but people can say, well, China or Russia are cooking the books with their numbers. Well, maybe they are, but that shouldn't be our standard of success. <laughs> the one thing that makes America great is that we said, well, we don't care how you do it, world. We're better than you. Well, we're not being better than the world right now. And I think that's what bothers me is is we're setting the bar so low. It's kind of like, well, at least I'm not Hitler argument. It's like, well, yeah, great. Yeah. You're not the worst human ever to exist. Good job. But I think we can do better than that. That's a really uh, trippy argument, though, Jake, because... And, and I look back to where I come from. So I grew up in a very small, very isolated California town. And nationally, I think people look at, at California, um, beaches, palm trees, liberal politics. Those are the kind of three things that people come into their mind. Um, I grew up very different now. It's mm-hmm. a small town, like I said, isolated, outdoorsy, that kind of thing. And... For my mom 
and both parents still live in that town and to to subject people with a population of 3000 to the same laws of Los Angeles is irresponsible. I think you can have a national response. National response doesn't mean one size fits all, but it does mean it's nationally administered. Um, I don't think you have to say, well, here's how we're doing it in LA. So that's how Bishop California needs to do it. Or that's how Belleville, Wisconsin needs to do it. Um, But there are measures that can be taken and there are programs and policies and procedures that can be put in place or put into action, right? We have in the military, there's a backup plan to the backup plan for every engagement, but we don't have that here. We're just like, well, you guys know what to do. And clearly we don't because we're all behaving like fools. So I guess that's where I disagree with the the kind of laissez-faire approach that the federal government has taken. And it's not necessarily political response i think well it's I, a, I think i think that's i think it's a that's the problem holistic. is that it well you're, you're saying it's not a political it shouldn't be a political response that but that's the issue no i, is I that, think the federal government has failed and not i'm not just throwing shade at trump i think the federal right, well, government you, as a whole has we failed. could we could throw shade at, at every side especially in the federal government because that's where some of the biggest problems happen remember at the end of february you had in the end of January, you had Democrats throwing a fit because Trump wanted to close our travel with China. And they threw a fit when he closed down travel from Europe. And they were saying, well, hey, we've got to, um, hey, go out on the town in New York City, go see a show, have a good time. And then a month later, they're, you know, cursing Trump for not doing more. And then, of course, Trump is doing what Trump does, which is Everything's great. Everything's going to be fine. We've got a strong economy while the economy is crashing. So what happens there is that everybody jumps on their boat and they points at the, they point at the other boat and says, you're, you're doing it wrong. And so when we look at, um, if you're generally conservative and you look at New York and de Blasio and Cuomo and you say, those guys severely screwed this whole thing up. <clears throat> and then you turn around and you look at a state like Arizona and you said, look at us. You know, generally, if you're conservative, you say Arizona is doing great and then Arizona gets hit. And now if you're generally liberal, you're looking at Arizona. Look, oh, you guys screwed it up. You opened up too soon. You made a big mistake. And at no point does anyone say, what can the federal government or what should the federal government do in terms of guidance, in terms of a national response? Because you're right, Jake, there should be a federal response to this. And it doesn't necessarily need to be one size fits all. But that's what almost everyone goes to is that if the federal government says you need to do this and you're on a small farm in Nebraska, you're also thinking, I don't need to wear a mask because I work with nobody. I work with cows. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's also the whole thing with, you know, the United States is uh, very heterogeneous, right? Like we have people from every part of the world here, from every background, every religion, every belief, every... Um, race, language, like we've got them all. Um, Germany and Sweden and some of those countries can have more of a a, uh, national response that everyone can get on board with because they tend to be more cooperative societies. Americans are not. 
We don't like to cooperate. Mm. That's why we're Americans. We like to do our thing. And that has served us really well in a, a lot of circumstances. And in this case, it's not serving us great. Yeah. As Sweden's response, which I think is something we could have done ourselves, is if you're high risk, you're in quarantine. We'll take care of you. We'll get you food. We'll bring you what you need. But you need to quarantine. Everyone else, go about your business. Is that best accomplished by the federal government, though? In that case, I would say that really needs Sweden to be also more has localized. Health care system. So yeah, yeah. I mean, and they I also mean, have what? What's what's the population of Sweden? That's like six. And and they're mostly Swedish, right? Yeah. So yeah. it's going to be the, a federal response on that level is going to be tough, but state response might be better. But that's where the states would be differing. In a bunch of different ways. Yeah, I, I, I ten point ten million. And like I said, ten million. I, I, in gen- general, I agree. I think states should be left to their own devices. But we literally have the CDC and FEMA for these very things, and we haven't used them the way we should. Um, and and, and because we haven't used them well in the past, and so people don't trust them. But constitutionally, one of the things right promote the general welfare i think this is the general welfare and and because we haven't used them well in the past is not an excuse to not have a national response now what that looks like is something that is probably beyond our pay grade which is volunteer but um i think i think this is personally for me it's shown me a weakness in a decentralized response to an epidemic. I guess that that's mm. my main gist is that seeing how each state has responded, many of those states have failed. And while each state should have a different response, I do think that needs to be coordinated at a, at a national level. Um, I guess that's my soapbox um, on how we're dealing with this current crisis. Um, and it, it, it's just a hard subject to broach because we're, we're talking in a lot of generalities here, too. You know, and, and, and what keeps popping into my head is how do you enforce these these rules from that, that come down from a centralized government you know, the federal government, whatever? How do we enforce those in Bishop, California? How do we enforce those in Bellevue, Wisconsin? Belleville, don't, not Belleville. Those me. are vicious rivals. Don't get those two confused. <laughs> <laughs> I think, but I think uh, there's a myth of uh, liberty that we have in America, and I don't know if that's 100 percent true. And I think that I see you crossing your arms. I'm, I'm listening. <laughs> I'm on the edge of I my think, seat. I think we like to think that we're free and we can do what we want, and while we are a free nation. Uh, the federal government has owned air travel since 2001. There's nothing stopping them from putting in restrictions on air travel, right? I mean, after the after September 11th, they shut it down. They said no flights mm-hmm. because of of 9/11, and then they put in the TSA and and all those changes. And so, what's to stop them from saying, "All right, Delta, you can fly, but you have to um, space your seats out." And you have to make sure everybody wears a mask. My wife took a flight to visit her family in Pennsylvania. And she said, Delta 
was great. They handed everyone hand sanitizer. They made sure everyone had a mask and they spaced every seat to every other. Um, American Airlines on the way back didn't do any of those things. So I think when you talk about national response, you need to look at it. I mean, there's there's a lot of things that the national government already touches that we don't think about when it comes to a crisis like this, that they already have the authority and we can argue on whether or not they should or shouldn't, but they already have it and they're just not using it well. And I think that's um, what's becoming clear. And maybe that's an argument against the federal government having a lot of powers that they keep screwing up. And that's totally yep. valid. But <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> but the states aren't doing a bang up job either. And I think that's the, the you can't you can't have it both ways. We can't say, well, let the states do it. And then our cases beat everyone in the world except possible communist China and oligarch Russia. We can't we can't say, well, our decentralized and even in Sweden, their their non response or their laissez faire response Compared to the other Nordic countries, their numbers and their deaths are way, way up. So I think you can you can make a case that we can't use the 50 lab experiment that we have right now. If we hadn't learned anything by now, then what's the point? Yeah, but I think this, this pandemic is going to be over at a certain point. And then how, how many times has the federal government given back power? So I think that that's a very slippery slope to say, oh, make everybody follow Delta's lead on the on the air travel and do it exactly like Delta. Because, you know, if you if you allow the federal government to start making those changes, and I know I I know this is just one example, um, that's a really slippery slope that can trickle into uh, families and schools and churches and you know we're those are the kind of things that we're seeing right now yeah it just, so just a, a note because we we talk about well these european nations are doing so much better um if you look at deaths per million population the united states is ranked ninth so we have 416 deaths per million um compared to but but our cases are some of the highest, except for so the, the countries that have more deaths per million: France, Sweden, Italy, Spain, UK, Andorra, Belgium, and San Marino. San Marino is doing terrible, by the way. And they've only had seven hundred cases and forty two deaths, but that's one thousand two hundred thirty eight deaths per million in population. Um, so, you know, we do have a large population, and it, you know, it's likely we're going to see a lot more cases. Um, I thought I had more to say, but I don't. No, that's good. That was gold. I think we <laughs> we got something there. I I get it. And I think, unfortunately, we could talk about this for hours and hours and probably not get to a conclusion. Um, but I, I do want so to get to. Here's a question then. To put the COVID crisis into context, like I said, we're looking at in the four months 13 million cases and half a million deaths. The Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 had three waves, two in 1918 and one in 1919. Um, and those waves lasted about four months each. And 10, what, 10 million dead in the More first than, wave? Like 50. Oh, 50 million. The, I know second the second wave, wave was second wave was the worst. It was the worst. So, yeah. and, and what was odd about that wave is 
affected 20 and 30 year old people more so mm-hmm. than your elderly and young. So to put this into context, and I think this is where a lot of the, the pushback, especially in the United States, comes from, is people in the United States are losing their jobs, losing their income, losing their their businesses, and they're looking around, they're like, I don't know a single person who has even tested positive for this thing. I'm being told this thing is real, but I don't, I, I, there's nothing tangible other than the fact that my business has gone under or I haven't gotten paid in six months. And so you're asking people to suspend their, suspend their disbelief because they see nothing around them about this disease. They don't know a single person who's gotten it except for celebrities and athletes. And they're being told their business is worth the cost. Losing their business is worth the cost. And that's, I think, where the disconnect is. Because people can't see tangibly in front of them the consequences of this disease. But they're being asked to lose everything for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. And I, I don't know how you want to wrap I guess this segment up, cut. But I, I, so we usually I, do it. Just cut it. <laughs> yeah. But I think, and and maybe this will be a good lead-in for what we're going to talk about next, because we're going to talk about how has this affected us personally, and then we're also going to talk about how do we see America and, and the glo- and globally. But I want to focus mainly on America. Um, how is that going to be different after this pandemic? Because one of the things about the bubonic plague is that one of the direct consequences of the bubonic plague was the rise of the middle class in Europe and the move away from feudalism and one could say the eventual rise of the Renaissance. So the reason the middle class formed is because I'm going to take a painting after this as you should. I'm going to be painting some (laughs) murals on some ceilings. Everybody would like to say in one of the plagues in London that, that's when Shakespeare wrote some of his best work and Isaac Newton when he was confined, you know, but anyway. Oh, yeah. The, the point is the, the middle class, the reason the, it happened was because all these peasants died and the peasants were tied to the land. They didn't actually own any of the land that they worked. Well, when they all died, there was nobody to produce food for the lords, the, the, the nobility. And so the peasants that were left were now a, uh, a commodity. <laughs> And they needed, they could now, people had to compete for their service, just like a company competes for a work, for a worker. And so they had to say, well, we'll pay you more if you go over to, to Lord Hoffman's house and, and work on his, on his land. And, and then big city layman said, well, if you come over to my land, um, not only will I pay you more, but I'll, I'll, I'll actually let you own a piece of land. And so the peasants were now able to no longer be peasants, but they were now, they were now vested and they now earned actual money and they had actual land that was theirs and and so one of the benefits of the black plague as terrible as it was was that the feudal system was essentially destroyed as a result of this in the renaissance because now people had money people not just the royalty but the, the the people had money and so they said well i want art i want finer things i want to spend my money on all those nice things that my lord and lady have and that was a great result 
of the bubonic plague. And in addition to the the medical knowledge that um, doctors and surgeons uh, gained and, and kind of the move away from superstition. And, and similarly, with um, with the, the 1918 influenza, people after that, um, the idea of hospitals actually being a place where you treated people and you treated them holistically. And what's funny is one of the articles I said, Western nations started looking to alternative medicines and alternative treatments, and Eastern nations started looking to Western medicine um, for solutions. So this kind of mix of East and West started happening. And so I think... And Midwestern women looked towards essential oils. Oh, well, obviously. Correct. I mean, correct. Am I correct on that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, if you, don't have, if you don't have thieves and lavender, are you even trying to live? I mean, it's just basic knowledge. Um, and so I think we can look at this pandemic and although the mortality rate is way down, thankfully, and, and I think it is going to pass within the next 12 months and, um, our economy will recover. It's not going to be the same economy that existed a year ago, and it's not going to be the same education system that existed a year ago. And, you know, and there's a ton of different areas you can look at and say, this will be fundamentally different than it was before. And I think that's what's exciting to look at. Because um, we can argue about the, the, the government responses and, and the deaths and mortality rates, and, and there is a value to that argument. However, there's a huge opportunity. And one of the things that makes America great is our ability to exploit an opportunity and our ability to change with the times. Um, and our you know, exploitation is kind of a charged farther. word. I wouldn't that's use true. that word exploit. Like that's got some, it's got some bad mojo attached. Well, to it. I don't have a synonym right now, so we're gonna go with that. But but um, you know what? I I, I'm, think, I look forward as a nation to exploiting the opportunities that come next. Yeah. And cut. <laughs> All right. So that's uh, that's that first episode. episode. Oh, that was your cut. This is all getting included. Oh, sorry. All that right, wasn't well. my cut. <laughs> all right. That was episode one of Pandemic to Progress, Eric. Like, subscribe, um, comment, all that like, kind of stuff. Like, subscribe, Yep. And we'll see you next time.